Amen. Again, our scripture is uh, taken from Psalms 23, which again we will read in its entirety. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Now this evening what I'd like to do is take a more nuanced and uh, a more in-depth look at one of probably one of the most familiar, beloved, and uh, most quoted psalms of all of the Psalter. Uh, Most people who are not even believers know uh, Psalms 23 for its poetic beauty and for its splendid imagery uh, because David, who is the author of the psalm, and I think this is one of the ways that we understand this and one of the things that gives it so much depth and beauty is that David, who was the author of the psalm, at one point had been a shepherd and he was the shepherd, as it would, as it would be, of his father's flock. And so David, when he came into maturity... Uh, in understanding his role as a king over God's kingdom, uh, in writing this psalm, what David does is he makes a correlation between God's covenant promises and provisions and the kind of care that a shepherd provides for his sheep, uh, the sheep that they tend to. And that's intentional, and and David certainly means that. And, And if all we were to do is glean from this particular psalm, as many Christians do, and make the correlation that David does, that God's leading of us is like that of a shepherd leading his sheep, then I, I think that is inadequate. That is, that, is, that is legitimate. That's a legitimate interpretation or application of this psalm. However, I would also argue that as with all of Scripture, and especially the promises of God, especially the provisions of God, if we, don't just, if we don't just try to go one, a one-to-one correlation to all of those things that David mentions here, if we do not ground all of what God promises and provides for the salvation of the saints in the person and work of Christ, then I would argue, as preachers would say, we have left way too much meat on those bones. And so if all we see is God is like my shepherd and he does this and and we don't tie that specifically to the person and work of Christ, then we have neglected as much as, as legitimate as that may be, there is more that's being addressed here. Now, there are two biblical sources that would uh, put us in that direction, that there is more here than even probably what David understood. In other words, David was writing from his vantage point poetically about God's promises and provisions, but God used his words prophetically to point to the substance that is fulfilled in the person and work of his son. 
Very much in the same way that in, that in Psalms 40, David is, is writing from his own personal experiences, but yet the, psalm, the, the writer of Hebrews takes the words of David and applies them specifically to the person of Jesus Christ. Same thing in Psalm 16, where David says that he will not allow uh, our bodies to suffer or to, to die, perish in the grave. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says that David wasn't referring to himself, even though he may thought he was, uh, but he was, God was using him prophetically, and therefore he was speaking of Christ. And he therefore calls David, he elevates him from the stature of poet to prophet. And he says that David, by the way, is still in his grave. So the one that that applies to is Jesus Christ. So that being the case, what I want to do is consider the language, the shepherd language in this passage in light of two other places, and then we'll come back to Psalms 23 and, and look at four particular things from it. The two places are, one, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Now, what I want to do is, is, is real briefly, because I don't want to go into all of the details, I'll just give you a four-point outline without reading all of the verses of the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 34 and verses 1 through 10, God addresses the failure of the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he calls those spiritual leaders shepherds. Their failures is that rather than feeding the flock of God with the word of God, they've wandered and therefore they have scattered the people. And by the way, this is, this is not just in reference to the time of the overthrow of Jerusalem, but even they were scattered even before the overthrow of Babylon. So in verses 1 through 10 of Ezekiel 34, the Lord addresses the failure of the shepherds of Israel. And then secondly, in verses 11 through 22, Ezekiel addresses or, or God speaks through e Ezekiel and he promises to be the shepherd of his people. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 11 of chapter 34, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. So God is promising to be the great shepherd for his people. The third section in verses 23 through and 24, God says that the shepherd will be David. Now hold in mind that at the time Ezekiel is writing this, David is long dead. So we know he's not saying that God is going to raise David from the grave, but rather he is speaking of the son of David that will be the shepherd of his people, which will represent God himself shepherding his people. Look at Ezekiel 23 and 24. Beginning in verse 23, he says, or in verse 22, he says, I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And then in verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince over, uh, among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. 
So God says, on the one hand, I will be their shepherd. And then on the other hand, he says, David will be the shepherd. But in other words, I will shepherd my people through David. And if David is, it's pointing to the coming of Christ, who is the son of David, Jesus fulfills that because he is both the son of David and the son of God and God in the flesh. But then thirdly, we see, or fourthly, we see in verses 25 through 31 of Ezekiel 34 that God grounds all of his shepherd promises, that he grounds them or couches them in terms of a gracious covenant. And with that in mind, look at the the final verse of chapter 34. In other words, he grounds it in in all of his promises of covenant. We see it at the beginning in in verse 25. He says, and I will make with them a covenant of peace, and I will banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And then the very last statement is this, and you are my sheep. Human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So God shows the failure of the human leaders and human shepherds. He promises to be the shepherd of his people, and he promises the gift of the son of David that will fulfill him being the shepherd of his people, and he grounds it in covenantal language. So that everything that God promises is fulfilled in the shepherd who will guide and who will gather and guide and nurture his people. So that's one place. If, we, if you really want a fuller understanding of Psalms 23, understand it in light of what God promises and prophesies in Ezekiel 34. But then to, to bring it all home, because God does promise that David would be the shepherd of his people and be the prince among his people, Jesus' words and confirmation in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And so all of the shepherd language of Jesus is a fulfillment of the shepherd promises of Ezekiel 34. And so a fuller look at Psalms 23 incorporates a fuller description of the shepherding of God promised in Ezekiel 34 and claimed by Jesus in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now with that, I want to look at four things concerning the shepherding of God's people as set forth in the beautiful and poetic language of David here in Psalms 23. And I want to begin at the end. I want to begin at the end. In verse 6, in verse 6, he makes this proclamation at the end of the very end of the verse, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's my first observation. Man's ultimate problem is that he has been banished from the house of the Lord. You see, we have to first get an understanding of what what is meant by the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is not just the physical place of worship in a fallen world. It's not just the temple in Jerusalem. It's not just the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's not just the place in which we meet with him on this earthly plane in our day and time. But the house of the Lord is a broader, has a broader understanding. It goes back to Adam meeting with God in the garden. And the idea of longing for the house of the Lord, which, by the way, David speaks of quite often. He talks about the benefits of the house of the Lord. And in Psalms 27, he says, one thing I have desired and that which I have also sought for, and that is to dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. 
He's not talking about a place. He's not saying, I just want to live here and don't want to go back into the world. But if, if we connect it ontologically to Adam, then when we speak of the house of the Lord, it speaks of a place of, of, of fellowship in the presence of God that was lost in the fall. So this dwelling in the house of the Lord, all of the days of my life, because in a sense, if we understand this, David is not saying that he's just going to bury me in the church. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the end, the goal of my life is to dwell in the presence of the Lord with unbroken fellowship with him all of the days of my life. That being the case, if man's ultimate problem is that he has been banished from the house of the Lord, as we see in Genesis 3 with angels with flaming swords blocking them from the tree of life, if man's greatest problem is he has been banished, then the primary and ultimate function of the shepherd is to bring us home, is to bring us to the place that we have been banished from. And so what God has promised in Ezekiel 34 is that I will gather my people who have been scattered and I will bring them to my presence. I will bring them to myself. And Jesus, who says in John 10 that he's the good shepherd, what the good shepherd does is he brings us home. Moses says that thou has been our dwelling place from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He has created us to be an eternal, unbroken fellowship with him where there is neither night nor day. And we are, as long as we are not enjoying that experience, then we are not home. What God does in our individual corporate worship, what he does for us until we get to that great day where we worship him, where as the old folk used to say, where it's always howdy, howdy and never goodbye before we get there God brings us into a sanctuary to remind us you are home and the reason we are home is because Jesus tells his disciples in the midst of their sorrow in the at the prospect of his of his departure he says don't worry I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you would be also. So what David is anticipating here is to dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. Not a physical structure, but in the presence of God, never being kicked out, never, never being turned away, but always in the presence of God, never worrying about God's wrath upon me, but in the presence of the Lord, enjoying the Lord as the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number one asks, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so the ultimate function of the shepherd is to get us to that place where we can enjoy God forever and have a sense, even on this side of heaven, have a sense of being in the very presence of God. It's one of the reasons I love the language of Hebrews chapter 10. When it's, or Hebrews chapter 12, when it talks about worship. And it says, we've not come to Mount Zion, which can be, which has been shaken by lightning and thunder and the threats of the giving of the law. But it says this, we have come. And I love what R.C. Sproul has done with this in preaching about when we gather in worship, we are gathering with the, with the spirits of the saints and all of the angels who are worshiping God. We are getting, we are being allowed on this side of heaven to worship at a level that the angels are worshiping in 
stand in the very presence of God. So he says, we've not come to a mountain that has been troubled by fire, but we've come to Mount Zion. And God sets up Mount Zion in the sanctuaries where his son is worshipped and glorified. And it becomes the portal by which we are able to penetrate our right now experience and realize what Paul says constantly throughout the New Testament. You know you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because we have been brought into the presence of the house of the Lord and the house of the Lord is the dwelling place of God. The writer of Hebrew also says in chapter 4 that we can go boldly to the throne of grace and seek petition, make petition. We can, we can ask for mercy and help in our time of trouble. Hebrews chapter 6 says that we have a forerunner who has gone behind the veil and when we worship God in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ, then what we are being, what our shepherd is doing is taking us, feeding us from a portal that, that will be more fully ours when he calls us home. If our greatest problem is alienation and banishment, then the ultimate function of our shepherd is to take us into the house of the Lord and let us stay there. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, listen, don't, don't worry, I, I'll be back because I'm simply going to prepare a place for you. That's why we can be identified as being seated with him. That's why we have been raised with him, so that we can experience all of the pleasures and all of the joys that we, can, as much as we can handle on this side of heaven, in our, in our present constitution, that we can handle the joys of the, the house of the Lord, even in these failing tents. The end, the end function, the ultimate function of the great shepherd that, that David alludes to in Psalms 23 and God elaborates more, deep, more, more fully in, 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 in Ezekiel 34 and what Jesus says he is the fulfillment of, the ultimate function of the, of the great shepherd is to take scattered sheep. Paul says we all like sheep have gone astray. And the great function of the great shepherd is to, to gather us from where we have been scattered and then bring us into the house of the Lord. And what we experience, that's why I, I don't think we should take uh, our, our worship lightly. I was reading Keith Matheson. He's written another book on, on the Lord's Supper. And he makes this observation. He says, the Lord's Supper was intended, or the Passover and then eventually the Lord's Supper, was intended to be a strange event. It was intended to be strange. As the Lord's Supper is intended to be strange, it's strange in comparison to the things that are all around it. But then he makes this further observation. What has happened where that which should be strange has become too common? I think that's what happens sometimes in worship. We, we go through the motions and we forget what's actually taking place. Do you realize that when we come into the very presence of God, when he summons us into his presence, when we have that call to worship, God, the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe is stooping to meet with you and I. How excited would we be to get an invitation to a dignitary 
I think of how people make a big fuss of being in the presence of the Queen of England. And here we are in the presence of the King of the Universe. And it becomes ho-hum. Here's the function of the shepherd. To take scattered sheep and to bring us into the house of the Lord. And it's almost as he brings us here, especially on this side of heaven, he brings us here and through the things that have been provided, he's kind of whispering in our ears, do you understand where you are? We are in the presence. We are in the house of the Lord. Do you understand what, what, what took place in order for you to be there? You are in the house of God and you haven't been kicked out. Here's the second thing. Secondly, we see in the middle section of this psalm, we see three realities that testify to our banishment and our alienation. Three realities. In other words, we are, this, this, this psalm revolves around the shepherd leading us into the house of the Lord. And in the body of the psalm, he gives us three things that remind us that we need to be guided by a shepherd into the house of the Lord. Because here the, these three realities testify to the fact that we are not fully there yet. Three things. One, in verse three, he indicates discomforts of the soul. In verse three, he says, he restores my soul. Why does the soul need to be restored? Because we, being alienated from the life of God by our natural state, will experience discomforts of the soul. The pilgrims or the Puritans used to talk about the nighttime of the soul, but we experience discomforts of the soul. And so that, the very discomforts of the soul, those things that keep us up at night that have nothing to do with our physical ailments is a reminder that we've been banished. The sense of alienation. How many times do we read in the, the Psalms of David, especially in those Psalms of desperation? How long, O oh Lord? How long will you allow your people to suffer? How long will you allow me to experience this? And whatever it is that's causing him to cry out in anguish is evidence that we're not in paradise. And the shepherd has come to lead us to paradise. But not only is discomfort of the soul testimony of the fact that we are not fully in the house of the Lord yet, but we see in verse 4, the very shadow of death is a reminder that we, in our natural state, do not live fully in the presence of the Lord or in the house of the Lord as God created us to. In verse 4, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death refers to not only to the death that is at work within the writer, but the death that he experiences as he journeys along. We, we, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and the very fact of death testifies to the fact that we've been banished. You see, the one who was banished from the garden is the one who had been given the sentence of death. And then verse 5, we see a third reality that reminds us that we're not in the house of the Lord as we will be in the eschaton, and that is the fact of enemies. In verse 5, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
One of the things that David makes clear throughout the writings of or his writings in the Psalms is that enemies can be internal and external. David knows from his own life experiences, enemies can be at the dinner table as well as at the gate. And so the very fact of enemies, we see it even as early as Genesis 3. At the end of Genesis 2, uh, Adam is singing the praises of God for giving him the gift of a woman. And then when he sins and the judge shows up, he starts pointing his finger at the woman. Adam, did you eat that fruit? Oh, the woman you gave me. And so we see enemies, and, and I can see Eve like, what? For real? Is that what we're doing now? You... He would just give me this, this wonderful song of praise, and this is what we're doing now? So she looked around for somebody to point to, and she said, well, it was the, the snake. And from there, the Lord says, from now on, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get married, but there's going to be strains. And so the fact of enemies, enemies in the, host, the most hostile sense of, of those who would seek our lives or seek our positions or seek our, 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 our possessions, but enemies, those that we conflict with. The fact of enemies, understand that before the sin of, of, uh, before the sin of Adam, there, were, there was no, the only enemy was the serpent who had already been kicked out of heaven. And so now, the fact of enemies is a testimony to the fact that we are not naturally in the house of the Lord. As they say in Wizard of Oz, Dorothy Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. But that brings us to a third consideration, how the shepherd functions in the face of these three realities. Because, brothers and sisters, here's what we will have to deal with in our fallen state. We will deal, we'll have to deal with discomforts of the soul. We will have to deal with death. And we will have to deal with enemies. And so God has sent us a shepherd who has gathered us as we have been banished from the garden. And he promises three things that respond to the realities that remind us that we've been kicked out. In verse 4, he's the one who leads us. Amen. Isn't that good news? I like that because that means God doesn't just, he doesn't give us a road map. No, he leads us. And he leads us in a way, he doesn't just point, you know, sometimes traveling back in the days before you had GPS and you, th you followed the map and, and maybe there was a detour and then somehow the, the road didn't look right. So you look for a, a, a someone who was a, a, a local and you say, well, how do I get back? And, and I used to love that when my father would drive cross country and he'd stop at a gas station. How do I, I get to so-and-so or back to the, the main highway? And they start saying, well, you know, the crow cr uh, flies and go down three miles and turn a left there and, and it's like whoa that's you're good if you can follow that and, and, and he would he'd get back on the road but God doesn't send us a road map in verses 2 and 3 he says that the shepherd leads in verse 2 he says he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me Beside the still waters. In verse 3, he restores my soul, but he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. 
The shepherd comes to get us home. He comes to bring us to the house of the Lord. What reminds us is that we are not in the house of the Lord is the reality of our soul's discomforts and the shadow of death and the enemies that are all around us. And so the shepherd comes and he doesn't stand in the corner of the, of the field and point us in the way we ought to go. He leads us. And he does lead. Now I know that people have difficulty in understanding how the shepherd leads, but he does lead. Jesus in John chapter 10 says that my sheep know my voice and the voice of another they will not hear. And where the shepherd leads, the sheep will follow. There will be some stragglers and there will be some who want to join the crowd of the sheep who are well taken care of, but his sheep are led by him. So because of the reality of the, because of the reality of the soul's discomfort, because of the reality of death and the shadow of death, because of the reality of, 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 of enemies, our shepherd doesn't show us the way, he leads us in the way. So, brothers and sisters, when our souls are disquieted, it's not because the shepherd has left us. He's with us. He's leading us. And he feeds us. That's why he restores our souls. And our souls are spent as we wrestle with the issues of life. And our souls are, are exasperated as we deal with the issues and the realities of our own failures. And we are spooked as we go through the valley of the shadow of death. But our shepherd is with us. And we can't escape enemies. But our shepherd leads us. And he leads us through all of these things. He doesn't just point to the way. He is the way. And he leads us. But not only does he lead us, in verse 4, he comforts us. He leads us in the way, and as he leads, he doesn't do it stoically. He doesn't say, oh, keep a stiff upper lip. He comforts his sheep. In verse 4, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd who leads his flock, comforts his flock. He feeds us. I love what it says in Isaiah that a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flask he will not quench. Yes, he knows that we're spent. I love, don't you love the tenderness that the resurrected Christ shows the, the, the belligerent Peter? Remember Peter, oh Lord, no, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And then when they, he asks the question about someone betraying me, Peter says, oh no, not me, Lord. I'll, I'll die for you. I won't do anything like that. And then as soon as he he's arrested, Peter moves away and denies that he even knows him. And then when the Lord is raised from the, dead, from the grave, we see this encounter with Peter. Peter thinks that his failures has caused him to now have to go back to fishing. He has to go renew his fishing license. And Jesus comes to him. Remember, this is the same disciple that Jesus says, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. And Jesus goes to him. And he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times. Some have suggested that three times corresponds to the three times that Peter denied that he knew him. 
Then here's what he tells him. Then you just go on and feed my sheep. He already said, Peter, I already prayed for you. I, I knew Satan was already asking for you that he would sift you if he could, but I've prayed for you. Now I'm telling you, feed my sheep. I haven't come to get the keys back. I, I come to tell you that it's okay. Go ahead and, and tell them who I am. Feed my sheep. Because what God does through his shepherd is that he comforts. One of the great frustrations of not understanding the distinction between law and gospel is that too many preachers think that we are doing God's bidding when we beat people up from the pulpit. No, no, no. Let, let the law do its work. Explain what the law is and show how we've missed it. But we don't break anyone down by the law that we have not built up with the gospel. And if you know not the gospel, you'll never find comfort in it. But we don't kick folk when they're down. Because that's not what the shepherd does. He says he comforts. And he comforts us in our time of need. Peter needed a friend. And Jesus was that friend. Paul needed someone to encounter him, and Jesus is the one. He doesn't even just give him a great, he doesn't just give him a, a, a conversion experience. Jesus himself encounters Paul. Brothers and sisters, he comforts us. He comforts us because of the reality of our soul's discomforts. And the shepherd comforts, comforts us because we have to continuously pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And the, comfort, and the, shepherd, the shepherd comforts us because there are things that we don't understand that we have to deal with. And we get frustrated. And the shepherd comforts not only does he lead us and comforts us, we see in verse 5 that the function of the shepherd as he tries to get us home is to nurture and refresh us. He nurtures and refreshes us. In verse 5, he says, um, he says uh, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. Now, I know we think of that in, in a more ceremonial sense, but one of the reasons, just think of, of it yourself, why do you put oil in your hair? Why do you, why do you put oil you know, on your scalp? It's because it gets dried out. And our great shepherd puts the, 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 the anointing oil on us. It's, it's not olive oil. It's, it's, it's the oil. He's not talking about what we do in services. No. He says the shepherd. He, he refreshes us. He, 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 you look at a, at a wool's, at, 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 a, at a sheep's wool, especially when it's time to shear. It's close to shearing time. And the wool, it makes them uncomfortable. But the shepherd puts oil on their heads. He gives them refreshment. Here's the thing that he says. He says, I know your enemies are there. And so what I'm going to do is, is not hide you from the enemy. I'm going to set up a table for you. And sit down. Go ahead, sit down and eat. Don't you like that? Here's what he does. He prepares a table for us in the very presence of our enemies. In the presence of our struggles. In the presence of the, of the shadow of death. He sits us down at the table. 
Now, granted, when he instituted the Passover in, in Exodus chapter 12, he tells them to make sure you eat with your sandals on and your belts buckled because you're a pilgrim. But still eat. He doesn't say hurry. He just says eat. You know, eat, yeah, eat, you prepare it in haste, but go ahead and, and eat. Take your time and eat. Oftentimes when we serve the Lord's table, I remind people that, that I know the portions are small, but don't get it twisted. This is a meal. It's not a snack. And what he feeds us with is what we need most. The function of the shepherd is to get us home, to bring us into the very presence of God, into the house of the Lord where we will dwell forever. But on our way there, we have to deal with discomfort and death and we have to deal with enemies. And so as we deal with these things, the shepherd has a shepherd's bag that is prepared for everything that the sheep needs. And he keeps us in the way and he refreshes us. He says that not only does he prepare a table, but because of that, the opening part of verse 6, he says, Therefore, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. Well, that brings us to the fourth and final point. Because here's what we have to understand. If the shepherd is God, as we see in Ezekiel 34, and if the shepherd who is God is also David, then that means the shepherd that fulfills all of the substance of Psalms 23 is the God-man. And if it's the God-man, then here's something to think about. You know who our shepherd is? Our shepherd is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And because our shepherd is the lamb of God, that has been slain before the foundation of the world, here's what we know, is that goodness and mercy will follow us because it is the shepherd who leads us. Goodness will follow in our trails. It doesn't mean that only good things will happen, but goodness will follow us and mercy shall follow us all of the days of our lives. And we are assured because the shepherd is the lamb that was slain, we are assured above all else that one day we will indeed be in the house of the Lord forever. There is nothing that will disqualify us or kick us out because the shepherd has faithfully gathered us from where we were scattered and he brought us in and he led us along the way. As a matter of fact, if you see shepherds leading the flock, if you see them dealing with their flock, they aren't home yet. Home. Is, is they're, they're leading them. They're letting them get some food here and there. They're, they're letting them get the exercise that they need until they lead them home. The Lord is my shepherd. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not lack anything that I need to get home. But because my shepherd is the Lamb of God, I know for sure that goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life and ultimately he will deliver me safe and sound so that I can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No more angels with flaming swords, 
No more being locked out. No more being cast out. I will be brought home. And the scripture says in Revelation that, that there was a new heaven that came, a new earth that came down out of heaven. And it dwelt and so that God becomes the very dwelling place of his people. Thank God for the good shepherd. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you again for this Lord's Day that you have blessed us to experience. We thank you for bringing us away from our ordinary routine and speaking into our present moment truths of eternal value and weight. We thank you for the portal of heaven that has fed us with our heavenly benefits even as we dwell in these houses of clay. But we thank you especially for the gift of the great shepherd who has gathered us from where we have been scattered by sin and is guiding us into the fold until we are brought into your presence for all eternity. Feed us. Let us be restored and renewed by what you've given to us through your shepherd. Let our wounds be healed. Let our sorrows be quenched. Let our souls be made happy because we have been nurtured and cared for by your great shepherd. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for his rod and staff. Thank you for the table that you've set in the presence of our enemies. And thank you for being with us in our time of trial. Thank you for being our shepherd and for making us your sheep. It is in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.